Without the ones like you, who work tirelessly to keep things running, everything would suddenly stop. Hospitals, factories, schools, and power plants, they all depend on you. No matter the weather, emergency, or time of day, you're the ones who get it done. At Granger, we're here for you with professional grade industrial supplies. Count on real time product availability and fast delivery. Call clickgranger.com or just stop by. Granger for the ones who get it done. This is Perspectives, the show where a conversation about our differences often shows us what we have in common. I'm Condis Presley. My guest today is Trudy LeBron. She's the CEO of Script Flip. She works with organizations that seek to upgrade their diversity, equity, and inclusion efforts. Trudy, thanks for being with us. You are so welcome. Thank you for having me. This happened on November 7th. Americans have called upon us to marshal the forces of decency, the forces of fairness, to marshal the forces of science, and the forces of hope in the great battles of our time, the battle to control the virus, the battle to build prosperity, the battle to secure your family's health care, the battle to achieve racial justice and root out systemic racism in this country. For someone in your line of work, this had to be pretty good to hear. Yes, it was so good to hear, especially because the current administration earlier this year banned that work from being done um, at the, you know, any organizations that were using federal funding can no longer use funding to get professional development or support around issues of diversity, equity, and inclusion. Uh, those that work has been banned in those institutions. So to hear our president elect say that was really important. Um, and I just, I can't wait. You've come to this work in a non-traditional way. Do you mind sharing your story with our audience? So I grew up in um, in the inner cities in central Connecticut and uh, where I still live. And, um, you know, in the, in the 90s when I was a teenager in the community that I lived in, just like many other communities throughout the United States that were predominantly black and brown communities, the teen pregnancy rate was really, really high. And so my story... Um, started like a lot of a lot of you know girls my age who were finding themselves you know 15 years old 16 17 years old and pregnant and really facing some big choices and for me the the choice was that I had to leave school and um raise my baby (laughs) you know and and I didn't have a a whole lot of other choices and so I, I again, dropped out ninth grade, had my son. I had a second son the following year. And, you know, the world has some really strong stories about what my life was supposed to be. And the, the people in the world were really not, um, not as supportive as, as you might think. I remember standing in, in banks, you know, in the line of a bank and people just saying like, you know, asking me if my children had the same father or how old I was, like just wild, wild stuff. Yeah, so the- That's not wild, that's rude. Yeah, rude, rude, wild, all of the, totally inappropriate, all kinds of things. Um, And so, you know, this message that I would be a burden on the system and that I was gonna be a failure and that I would never be educated and that my children's fate was, you know, doomed and all of these things, that was a really strong narrative. And I, 
I always say that, you know, the, the things that got me in trouble when I was a kid are the things that saved me, like my stubbornness and my refusal to just like accept the things that people around me were telling me. And so I was just like, nah, like that's not, that's not what we're doing. Like that's not what's going to happen. And so I, I homeschooled myself through high school. I got a GED the following year. Like as soon as I had that GED in my hand, I was filling out the application to the community college, like the local community college. Like I don't even, I think it probably was the same day because that's how focused I was on what I was going to do. And it turned out that I was a college freshman the same year that I would have been a high school senior had I stayed in school. So I was, you know, I was early, I was ahead of the game and I'd never looked back. And even when, you know, there, there were days and I'm sure lots of folks can relate to days that you're, you're doing what you think you're supposed to be doing, but it's just so hard. You're like, why, like, why am I doing that? So yeah, there were definitely semesters where I was like just super broke and, you know, trying to figure out like how to, what I was going to do next. But I just knew if I would have just stay, stay in school, get this degree, you know, work and, um, and things are going to be okay. And so that's what I did. I just really focused on, on my education, on taking care of the kids. And, um, thankfully I had enough support around me and enough people offering me alternative narratives, right? People telling me, yes, you, you are smart. You can turn this around. You can make something of yourself. And, you know, there were just enough of those people that I was able to find a way, find a way forward. Tell us about some of the people in your life who've offered a more supportive narrative. So one person in particular who was the, um, she was like a social worker, program director of a teen mom group that I was in. And the teen mom group was really the foundation of my community from the time I was probably 16 years old to the time I was 21. Um, and the women in that group, you know, we, we were all shared so, so many things. But the woman who was in charge of that group for the first couple of years that I was a part of it was a young woman, a young white woman who didn't know anything about teen moms or babies or anything like that. And that was probably the best thing because all she knew was that we were teenagers and that we needed to be treated like teenagers. And yeah, we needed to be talking about health and we needed to understand how to take care of our children. And, and of course, she understood that that needed to happen too. But she would take us to uh, to see documentary films at like the local independent art, you know, um, art gallery. She would take us to uh, to the local college for, we would do bake sales and we would sell them at the local college so we could raise money to go to New York. And just being in these environments that, again, the world had told us were not for us even the college that we would go and, and have these bake sales at, there was like a big fence around, you know, right in the middle of the community that we lived in. But it was like, you don't go on that property. <laughs> that wasn't for us, you know? So she would give us access to this world that, you know, wasn't necessarily that we didn't think was for us and showed us that it could be if we wanted it. And she was my first coach. Like she didn't identify as a coach. She probably identified as a mentor, um, but she did a lot of coaching and it changed my life. Like it, it, and she's someone that, you know, I'm still in contact with today. And um, it's just so important that she didn't see us as like teen moms. And she didn't see us as like somebody that needed to be fixed. She was like, okay, no, so you're 17. So let's have this conversation about going to college. <laughs> you're just like anyone, just like any other 17 year old. Before you started Script Flip, 
you worked in the nonprofit world. Was that experience with your mentor and coach the moment you discovered that you also wanted to mentor and coach others? Yeah, so I thought that I was going to be doing that work in nonprofits. Years later, you know, I actually went back and had the same job that that woman had. So I went back to the same nonprofit organization and was the program director for teen moms in my community. And you know, that is what I thought I wanted to do, like be in nonprofits, be close to the ground, working with people. And what I found was that when you're working in that sector, it's like a completely different, it's a completely different experience. And the policies, I, I learned that the policies that were in place and the practices that are in place that are kind of required of you to sustain a nonprofit are a lot of the things that I just fundamentally disagree with and are not in line with equity and anti-racist practice. So I didn't necessarily have the language to describe it like that back when I was, you know, 25, 26 years old, but I knew that I just had that feeling that something wasn't right. So for example, I would sit in meeting after meeting after meeting with lots of like white folks with fancy suits on and degrees, and they would be talking about the people in the community and like how horrible their lives are. And like, they had all these ideas for how to fix everybody. And I was like, shouldn't we talk to them? Like, shouldn't we be talking to the people who are most impacted? And that just wasn't a, that wasn't a practice. Um, At the same time, I was working on my master's degree and learning about best practices in organizing and and what creates change. And I was like, oh no, like the, the data is here to support that if we work in collaboration with communities, it's actually better. It's actually more effective. But the systems that were in place and a lot of these nonprofit institutions just didn't allow for that. Um, also lots, lots of egos, lots of people, you know, thinking that they, they have the solutions because they went to school and they've been doing the same thing forever. A lot of that, this is how we've always done it. And I just didn't fit into that system the same way that I didn't fit really well into the school system when I was a a kid I just didn't fit um I was like I got to figure out another way I I think that I'm gonna have to go and figure out how to work for myself is that how script flip was born yeah so it was born out of actually was really born out of a need to make some extra money because I just was not making enough I wasn't I was working full-time in the nonprofit sector and I wasn't making enough enough money to get ahead like to to save any money or to get a new car or you know just the things that I needed to do I, I again I had two children right so it wasn't like I was a 25 year old who could just kind of like slowly figure out what I wanted to do with my life. Like I was living the life of a full grown adult with lots of adult responsibilities. And so I had to be side hustling. So I would take my vacation days and go and do trainings at other schools or organizations. It started at my, my degree is in theater and it started with me taking, um, taking time to go and teach theater workshops on the weekend and just kind of getting getting a flow for how to negotiate money, how to like get paid, how to, how to get contracts, you know, how to submit proposals for things. But as my professional experience and my academic experience started to grow, then I was like going into schools and working with teachers and talking about adolescent development and talking about working with high-risk youth, um, talking about diversity, equity, and inclusion. And so little by little, my consulting practice was just growing on the side out of a need really just that I needed more money. Um, There were years where I didn't take any vacation time because all of my vacation time, I was just doing client work on the side. Um, And that's how it started. And then 
maybe six years ago, I started really thinking about how does this translate to an online space and how can I start empowering some of the people that I care about in my community, other young professionals like me to help them create their own side hustles and to create, you know, teach them some basic skills so they can go out and make some more money. Um, and so I decided that I was going to take the business online and that's when everything changed because it just opened up a world, you know, a world of possibilities. I was no longer bound to the physical community that I was living in. That's the moment when your side hustle became your main gig. As this happened, did you see yourself emerging as an anti-racist coaching in the community? You know, I had like a dream that one day I would be having conversations like this with people um, about things that impacted that, that really impacted communities, but I had no way to know how it was going to unfold. I just always knew that I have this vision to be doing really meaningful work, real transformative work. Um, I know what I'm good at. I know that I can connect with people. I know that I can, uh, I've always had this knack for having really uncomfortable conversations with people, but in a way that is a little inviting and that keeps people open. So yeah, at that time, I, I just knew that I needed to figure out how to take care of my family and how to, and how to do it in a way that was flexible. But I'm just so grateful for the way that everything has unfolded. It's been amazing. Since the protest this summer, people are talking more about having uncomfortable conversations. What is your approach to an uncomfortable conversation? So my approach is really about connecting people into their values and thinking about how this work is applied in a, in a work context, in a business context. So there's a lot of people who do um, anti-racist education a little bit more broadly. And so they're talking about like the social justice issues and they're talking about how to have those kinds of conversations with your families and with your communities. But my work is really about taking, taking all of that information and how, how to apply it in a, the context of business. Because businesses, we spend so much time engaged in work, right? Whether or not you're an entrepreneur, most people go to work and interact with a workplace on a daily basis, almost daily basis. So if we can create workplaces that are more inclusive, more equitable, where the leaders in the workplaces are leading from a place of equity, the opportunity for transformation, I just think is so incredibly huge because again, we're spending so much time there. Also, workplaces have been one of the places where exploitation and oppression is perpetuated the most. So if you grow up, if, if you start a business and you're taught that the purpose of business is to just accumulate as much money as you can, you know, and um, keep your profit high, keep your costs low, then, and, and if you're not connected to an equity approach, the chances that you're going to be perpetuating some of the things that have created income gaps, for example, and power gaps is really high. So I really love working with people who are in lead who are in leadership in a various work in various workplaces so that we can create more inclusive work communities so that people can have shared power so that people could be earning more and so people can start to understand that we don't have to make a choice between making a lot of money and doing a lot of good those things can happen at the same time um, and that's something that I really pull on from my nonprofit experience. You know, I felt like when I was in the nonprofit world, there were a lot of really great things. 
Um, and when I started learning about like the online world and the more kind of for-profit institutions, I envisioned this kind of work place and business model that really takes the best of both world, worlds and all of the social impact and kind of community focus of a nonprofit, but all of the strategic approach to business, if you put those things together, you can really have businesses that are truly transformative. This is Perspectives. I'm Condis Presley. We're talking today about the uncomfortable conversations surrounding the idea of diversity, equity, and inclusion. My guest is Trudy LeBron. She's the founder of an organization called Script Flip. They are active in this arena. Trudy, small business is the engine driving our economy. What are some of the more common mistakes that small business people and their employees make with respect to the DEI space? Yes, absolutely. So one of the things that I think that entrepreneurs are making, the, one of the biggest mistakes that I think that they're making is that they think that diversity is a compliance issue or that they think that diversity is like this check the box kind of approach to their work. And so they feel like, well, if we can get more black and brown folks to come and work here, like we're good, all set, you know, like we're doing great. And that is just wrong. The first place people really should be looking is the climate and the culture that they are providing in their workplace, because if you don't have a healthy environment, no one's going to want to be there. Like no one's going to want to be working there. No one's going to want to be collaborative. And so diversity isn't just diversity is really insufficient. Diversity is about numbers. It's about how many different numbers of people can we get in this space but equity and inclusion is really a measure of the quality of that experience. So now that we have all these different people here, what are the outcomes? How do they feel? Are they collaborative? Is it safe? Is it healthy? Are people growing? So we need to be looking at all of that to really understand if we're making the kind of impact in the workplace that we want to be making. So diversity alone is insufficient. We have to be thinking about the whole approach. That's one of the biggest mistakes that folks are making. You believe some businesses perpetuate a racist and oppressive work environment and don't even know it. What are some common sense examples of what not to do? Yeah, I think one of the biggest ways that people are perpetuating that is in the way that they even hire people. Um, we need to be hiring people with a real conscious approach to, again, culture and fit. So I'm constantly encouraging my clients to put design a hiring process that is going to ask people at the beginning to talk about their commitment to inclusivity and like where they fall. Um, where they fall in this work and what they believe about this work. Because if you're bringing people in, if you're not screening for that, the likelihood that you're going to attract a workforce where some of the people don't hold those values, then how, how are, how are people going to interact together? Like when you're saying now we, well, now we're rolling out this diversity initiative and you have half of your workforce who are like, well, I don't even want to talk about that. Like, why am I, why are we talking? We, you know, we sell soda. Like, why do we even need to be talking about this? Um, but if you screen for that from the beginning, if you start talking about people's values and tell people through an interview process that this is a company that's really committed to diversity, equity, and inclusion. How do you feel about that? How do you contribute to that kind of place? Have you worked in other places where they have taken these issues on? What has that experience been like? Then you start to understand that you are actually building a full community 
And you get to hear from your candidates right up front about if they're going to be on board with that or not. And so you have to take responsibility right up front for creating that culture. And if you're not doing it in your hiring process, you're missing the opportunity and you're going to be perpetuating environments where people can't show up fully as themselves in the workplace. So how do you advance the process among workers who may not be open to the idea of growth in an ever-changing workplace? Yeah, so I think one of the biggest things is really inviting people to take a personal journey. So this work also isn't the kind of thing that's like, here's a couple of skills that you just have, and here's a couple of, you know, posters that you put up in the coffee room. This is, this is a personal journey. And so creating the time and the space for people to sit in their own privilege and their own identity. And because a lot of folks, especially white folks, have never even thought about what it means to be white. And so they need a moment to just like think about what that means, um, process what they've learned about race, what they've internalized about race or gender or sexual orientation or, you know, whatever the ways are that we are different. Um, if we can start with a personal journey instead of just, again, those check the box kinds of things, then we start to see people be more open to moving and they start to realize like, oh, I've been holding on to this, this idea or this narrative that I picked up from my mom or you know my grandparents when I was growing up and I didn't even realize that. And so once people are confronted with their own mess, it's really hard for them to stay there because they now have this like cognitive dissonance. They're like, oh, I don't actually believe that, but I'm showing up in this way because it's what I've learned. And so now I have to go on this journey to start changing. And so that is where you start with people. And that tends to be a really effective method of moving people forward. Trudy, God willing, next year in 2021, we will begin to emerge from this pandemic and actually return to our places of work. What do these DEI initiatives look like to you moving forward? Well, I too really hope that people will be returning to workplaces and being in community with each other. Um, I, I think that this is, we're in a moment where it's never going to go back to normal, right? Like we're always, it's going to be a pre-COVID and post-COVID kind of way that we, that we think about life. And this post-COVID world I think is so interlinked with the movement for racial justice. And so if workplaces be, be and you know, and I'll, and I'll just say really quickly, that's because, because we've all been home for months now and locked in front of any number of screens that we have in our homes, we're seeing what is happening in a way that we would, that it would have been a little bit more easy for people to ignore. If we were just going on about our days, you know, going on our vacations and, you know, just like having our normal lives. I think that people are paying attention in a way that they just haven't before. So the opportunity to reset a workplace and have everybody come together and name immediately that this is a priority, I think is an opportunity that I just implore business owners and leaders to name as soon as you get back, to, you know, as soon as you get back together to say, hey, this is how we are going to move forward. We're really going to prioritize this. And, and this is the commitment that we're going to make. And we're going to talk about these things and we're going to let people show up and we're going to acknowledge when there's a national tragedy, we're not going to act like it's just another Tuesday. Like we're going to take a moment and talk about what our responsibility is to each other and to our communities. So put this on the table, like understand that these things affect the people that 
are in your workplace and affect the inter the interpersonal relationships of of your team. So put it on the table, be willing to talk about it, be willing to to have things be uncomfortable and let people know that it's a value because if you can do that then more people are going to feel seen, they're going to feel like they can show up, they're going to feel like they can say the thing that they have been holding on to and it's going to contribute to a more connected community um, in the workplace and more connected communities in workplaces are more effective workplaces. And you'll be able to keep the profits high and expenses low. Absolutely. If someone in our audience wants to connect with you, how do they? The best place to come and learn more about the work that I'm doing is actually on Instagram where I hang out a lot and you can find me at Trudy LeBron on Instagram. And you can also check out our website, um, TrudyLebron.com. Trudy is with an I. Trudy LeBron, CEO of ScriptFlip. It's been a pleasure. Thank you for being my guest today. You're so welcome. Thank you for having me. Perspectives is a community and public affairs program crafted with you in mind. If there's a guest you'd like to hear interviewed or a perspective you think should be explored, let me know. If you're old school, just write me. 1601 West Peachtree Street, Northeast, Atlanta, Georgia, 30309. Or message me via social media. I'm Condos Presley on Facebook, Condo29 on Twitter and Instagram. Thanks for listening. Be sure to listen again next week at this very same time as we examine another perspective. Without the ones like you who work tirelessly to keep things running, everything would suddenly stop. Hospitals, factories, schools, and power plants, they all depend on you. No matter the weather, emergency, or time of day, you're the ones who get it done. At Granger, we're here for you with professional-grade industrial supplies. Count on real-time product availability and fast delivery. Call, clickgranger.com or just stop by. Granger for the ones who get it done.